One of the things that needs to happen and is happening now is that the contributions of thousands of Black women are being discovered and recognized because it's not just Ida B. Wells. It's not just Mary Church Terrell. It's not just those kind of big national Black women suffragist names. It's women in every city, in every state. And so it does take more digging. And what the Centennial has done is stimulated this kind of broader, deeper, more diverse research. And that's one of the, I think, most important parts of of this commemoration of the, the Centennial of the 19th Amendment is that we are gaining these new stories or rediscovered stories and being able to place it into the canon as they should have been. Elaine Weiss is an award-winning journalist and writer. She has worked as a Washington correspondent, congressional aide, and speechwriter, and a magazine editor. Her byline has appeared in The Atlantic, Harper's, New York Times, as well as in reports and documentaries for National Public Radio and Voice of America. In her most recent book, The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote, she tells the gripping story of one of America's greatest political battles, the ratification of the constitutional amendment that grants women the right to vote. Her awards and recognitions are too many to list, but among them, the Woman's Hour recently won the American Bar Association's highest honor, the Silver Gavel Award, for a book furthering the American public's understanding of the law. Elaine, one of the questions we're asking at the outset of all of the interviews is just for our guests to tell us whether they have, whether you have a voting ritual. How are you going to vote this year? My usual voting ritual, of course, is interrupted this year. It's different. Uh, Usually I like to vote in person at my local public school. I see my neighbors. It's this exciting sense of ritual of democracy. So this year it's going to be different. I have voted by absentee ballot, which is made pretty pretty easy here in Maryland, where I live. And then on election day, I will be out as a poll observer. And we're seeing in the Daily News right now that that's actually a needed and valuable service. So thank you for that. So there has got to be a story about why you chose to write about women's suffrage. How did you come to the topic? The reason I came to write about suffrage was I realized I knew nothing about it. It was actually out of ignorance. And I was sort of ashamed because I am a voter. I am politically involved. I'm aware and engaged in the electoral process. And I realized I had no idea how I, as an American woman, had obtained the right to vote. I knew at one point in our history, women were not allowed to vote. And then in another, they were. And I had no idea how that came about. And I was a little embarrassed by that. One of the broader themes that you set out in your book is that the story of women's suffrage, um, because it's an American story, is a story about race. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Race did not 
enter my mind at first when I was looking at this. It should have. It should have because all all of our history, all of our politics is entwined with with race. But it was shocking to me when I started delving into both the historical record and, and the record of what happened in Nashville in 1920, how much race was a driver, not just an ancillary topic, but a driver of the suffrage movement. Women's suffrage movement grows out of the abolition movement. And the women we know as the pioneers, the foremothers, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan Anthony and Lucy Stone, Lucretia Mott, all begin their public careers as abolition workers and organizers. And so there's, an again, a, an intertwining of these movements and the same many of the same cast of characters in the mid-19th century. And you can almost talk about them as sibling movements. Let's go back to the 19th century and the intertwining of characters. And I want to draw your attention to the Seneca Falls Convention and the role that Frederick Douglass played. Can you tell us that story? The women of the early, if we want to call it, women's rights um, movement, very small group of women, but many of them in the abolition movement. And they decide to call a meeting. Why in Seneca Falls, which is a tiny uh, mill town in upstate New York? Well, because that's where Elizabeth Cady Stanton was living. And then Lucretia Mott came to visit sometime in that summer of 1848. And so they decided, okay, ladies, we've been talking about this for years. Let's do it. And they literally plan and execute this conference, which draws about 300 people over and over a two-day meeting, they plan it and advertise it five days ahead, less than a week to put this together. That's it's shocking. really amazing. <laughs> it really shocking. is. I can't put together dinner in that time. <laughs> so they're really kind of startled. They put a little, little notice in the newspaper that there's going to be this meeting, anyone interested? One of the people they make sure they alert and invite is a young man living in Rochester, New York, about 50 miles away. He had been working with them in the abolition movement. Elizabeth Stanton has written what she calls Declaration of Sentiments. And this is a litany of all the ways that women are disadvantaged in the law and and in society. So then she has a list of solutions, which she calls resolutions, that she wants the, the convention to agree to. And this will be the sort of marching orders. This will be their demands. And the ninth resolution is that women should have the right to vote. And this will help achieve all the other rights and privileges that she thinks women need. And this is so controversial. Her husband says, if you bring that up, I'm not attending the meeting. And he doesn't. Even her colleagues, even her pretty radical abolitionist colleagues think, don't bring that up. It's going to it's so radical. It's going to make us look ridiculous. They they actually ask her to take it off the agenda for the meeting. She refuses and she invites her young colleague from Rochester 
to attend. And he stands up when she introduces resolution number nine and there's a, a lively debate and it looks like it's going to be defeated. And he stands up and he says, you must, you must demand the right to vote and you must be willing to fight for it. And that's a 30 year old Frederick Douglass. Um, let me take us to um, some of the stories of the African-American women um, and suffragists who played a large role uh, in the movement, whose stories are often overlooked. One of them that I read about in your book was Ida Wells and the, Afri- uh, the Alpha Suffrage Club for Black Women. What can you tell us about Ida Wells? Well, Ida B. Wells probably one of the most famous uh, suffragists, but that's only part of her uh, illustrious biography. You may know she won a Pulitzer Prize posthumously this year in 2020 for her uh, amazing work as a journalist chronicling lynchings in the South. She was born in Mississippi. She lived in Memphis, Tennessee, during this journalistic period, she uh, her offices were firebombed several times. She had to escape, literally escape north to Chicago. And there she realizes that having the vote, well, she realizes it uh, long ago, but she, she begins organizing black women in their own suffrage organizations. It's a highly segregated society, not just in the South but in the North too. And black women were not welcome in the white women's suffrage clubs. And so they start their own. And Ida B. Wells and her alpha club is one of them. Uh, in 1913, the first national suffrage march is organized in Washington, D.C. March of, I believe it's March 3rd of 1913. It's the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. The suffrage organizer, young woman named Alice Paul, who will become quite famous in the movement in the years to come. This event is taking place in a Southern city, Washington, DC, very segregated. There are Southern women uh, from other Southern states who will be attending. And she's afraid they'll be offended if black women are allowed to march with them. And so she asks the the African-American women marchers to march in the back. Ida B. Wells refuses to march at the back. She waits on the side, she's in the crowd. And when her Illinois suffrage colleagues, her white colleagues come marching through, she just breaks into the line and marches with them shoulder to shoulder and they embrace her there. What later happens is in 1920, Ida B. Wells can vote. In fact, Illinois women get the vote a little bit before. And she organizes the black community to register to vote and to vote, and they elect the first black alderman in Chicago history. Another uh, pivotal and symbolic moment that I noticed in your book was the story of Juno Frankie Pierce. She was a Nashville civil leader, led efforts to gain suffrage for black women and register them to vote. And in May 1920, you wrote that she addressed the first meeting of the Tennessee League of Women Voters in the State House. Can you paint a picture to help us understand and see the significance of that moment. As you can imagine, Nashville is a very segregated city. There is, as in most cities, there is a, a 
white women's suffrage organizations and black women's. And Juno Frankie Pierce works with several colleagues in the African-American women's suffrage groups, including a woman named uh, Dr. Maddie Coleman. And they strike one of the more interesting collaborations. The scholars call it a rare alliance of Black women and white women working together to pass legislation that will be beneficial to both communities. And so there's this partnership of the Juno Frankie Pierce and her uh, Black women suffragists and the white women to elect a, a slate of reformers. And basically, they make a deal. They make a political deal and say, okay, we'll organize uh, our Black women voters. And suppression is not there yet. Uh, we'll support our the Black women voters to support your white candidate if you will make sure that there's some policy changes that will help the Black community. So they do this in 1919. What happens in 1920 is uh, in May of 1920, the League of Women Voters is established in Tennessee because women have at least limited ability to vote. And once women had one ability to vote, you could transform your suffrage organization into a League of Women Voters organization. And this is happening all around the country, even before the 19th Amendment is fully ratified. So this is the inaugural meeting of the Tennessee League of Women Voters. And they invite Juno Frankie Pierce to come address the group. The group is all white women. And she enters the state house. Now, you have to think how remarkable this is for Black women to be speaking in the state house, in one of the chambers. There she says, what will the Negro woman do? We will stand with our white sisters, but we, we want a deal. We want you to support uh, certain educational goals that we have. And, and there was a specific uh, agenda. And so she makes this very cogent, strong speech to the white women of League of Women Voters. And um, after 1920, they actually do uh, make good on, on several of those reforms. One of the things that needs to happen and is happening now is that the contributions of thousands of Black women are being discovered and recognized, because it's not just Ida B. Wells. It's not just Mary Church Terrell. It's not just those kind of big national Black women suffragist names. It's women in every city, in every state. And so it does take more digging. And what the Centennial has done is stimulated this kind of broader, deeper, more diverse research. And that's one of the, I think, most important parts of, of this commemoration of the, the centennial of the 19th Amendment is that we are gaining these new stories or rediscovered stories and being able to place it into the canon as they should have been. Absolutely. Were you able to unearth any stories of indigenous women or indigenous people who participated in the suffrage movement and what role they played? While the 19th Amendment did 
promised the vote to black women and and covered them legally. It did not provide the vote for indigenous women. And the reason is, is that in 1920, when the amendment takes effect, Native women were not considered citizens. It's not till 1924 that they are given citizenship, but it gets more complicated because, of course, it's election law is still state law. And they're not given citizenship by a constitutional amendment. It's by statute. It's by a, a federal order, I believe. So what happens is the states drag their feet in giving Native men or women the right to vote for decades. And I believe the last state to fully enfranchise Native women was Utah in 1962. But doesn't mean there weren't um, there wasn't organization and um, advocacy. I want to talk about advocacy and um, the different tactics to advocate for women's suffrage. One theme in your book is talking about the different groups who fought for suffrage and their the disagreement between them and among them over how to win suffrage. One of the, the quotes uh, by Frederick Douglass in your book is that power concedes nothing without a demand. And we see the fight uh, by Sue Shelton White, the suffragist from uh, Tennessee who was tired of what she called a slow, polite approach toward the vote. This story seems to have uh, more relevance today, uh, seeing all of the protests and disagreement about how to achieve change in our current day news. What can you tell me about this disagreement and tactics and whether the the different tactics used um, undermined or furthered the suffrage movement or or did they do both in, in different ways? <laughs> well, I think the first thing I'd like to say is that this kind of disagreement or even schism in a movement, a reform movement, a, uh, a, a change movement, is not unusual. And if we look back in history, we see that this happens, especially in a long-term movement where people have been fighting for decades and generations. We have to remember the suffrage movement, they're working for 72 years until ratification of the 19th Amendment. It's three generations of women have been working on this. But we see this kind of disagreement about how, what tactics to take, what strategy to use in the labor movement. We see it happen in the, certainly the civil rights movement later in the 20th century. I see it in the gay rights movement. So I just want to put it in context. It's not just that these were women and so they couldn't work together. This is almost a natural evolution in a long-term movement, which is not accomplishing what it set out to for decades. And people got frustrated and said, let's have a, a different approach. It happens in the suffrage movement in America and in Great Britain in the first years of the 20th century. And again, this is third generation of suffragists tired of waiting, tired of being polite, tired of pleading for the vote. They stand up and say, we've had enough. We're not going to be polite anymore. And so Alice Paul splits off from 
the mainstream National American Association, forms her own group, the National Women's Party. Alice Paul says, we are going to use direct action. We're going to confront Woodrow Wilson. We're going to embarrass him. We're going to embarrass the senators. We're going to campaign against Woodrow Wilson for his reelection bid in 1916. And we're going to vote, we're going to campaign against every Democrat, uh, whether they support suffrage or not. She shakes up public opinion. She gets a lot of press attention. She's brilliant at press. But her women are, and she, are imprisoned. They're force-fed. They're tortured in prison. Um, then they tour the country in what they, it's called the prison special on a Pullman railroad car. They go to every major city in, in America to bring their case, and they're dressed in tailor-made reproductions of their prison uniforms. And they march through the streets of, of most major American cities and say, we're your daughters and your sisters and your mothers and your grandmothers, and we've been arrested and tortured for uh, asking for the vote. So whether this was healthy for the movement or was it detrimental, certainly the mainstream suffragists were aghast and, and actually denounced Alice Paul and the Women's Party. So I think most historians have come to the conclusion, not all, that it, it there was a synergy between these two groups. There was a sort of good cop, bad cop. It was made it much easier for Woodrow Wilson to support and help Carrie Catt and the National Association. Now, it was ugly. They there was a lot of bad blood between the two groups. They did not work in concert. Maybe we shouldn't expect women to be monolithic in their approaches to politics any more than anybody else. But um, that's how we get to ratification of the 19th Amendment. Well, we have the radical, we have the diplomat, and I want to insert one other voice in the equation, which was the anti-sefs. Can you describe who the anti-sefs were and what role they played? One of the goals and one of the uh, jobs of the suffragists through these decades is to change hearts and minds about the role and the rights of women in society. Susan Anthony put it best. She said, we have to organize, educate, and agitate. And changing minds, changing attitudes Getting woke, as we would say, is their primary goal. They have to convince not only men who are in, have the power to change these laws, but they have to convince women that they need and should want the vote, that this will be helpful for their families. So we don't see organizations called Women Opposed to the Vote or, you know, the New York Association of Women Opposed to the Vote until around 1911, because things are starting to pick up for the suffragists. And so now a backlash begins. They are headed by, for the most part, wealthy, society, well-connected women. Basically the status quo saying, we don't need any changes. Thank you. Everything's working just great for us. The other reason they may be working against suffrage is their husbands are 
big time bankers and corporate lawyers and their clients are against women's suffrage because there's a lot of corporate resistance because they think women for many different reasons will be bad for their bottom lines. There are other women who are religious conservatives and truly believe, and, and men share this, that women's suffrage goes against the will of God as they interpret it. And then there's women who believe that women's suffrage will undermine the American family. It will upend gender roles. It will emasculate American men. It will cause divorces because women will, wives will argue with their husbands. They may have been right about that. Um, <laughs> that uh, women will abandon their families. And then there's also, we find, especially in the Southern states, um, there are women who also are just appalled by the idea of black women able to vote, which they would, will be, and um, that this might presage uh, an expectation that Black women are socially equal to. One thing that struck me as I read your book was just how much the history of suffrage read like today's newspaper. In the aftermath of uh, the killings of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and uh, Breonna Taylor and others this year and the uprising uh, that we're seeing demanding for uh, racial equity in our justice systems. We, we see a, a disagreement about tactics. There's a disagreement about messaging. There is, frankly, a disagreement about whether or not we need uh, systemic change. And I wanted to ask you, having studied this movement, which, like I said, has has so much relevance to me um, in our present day. What did what did you learn from that study that will help give our listeners um, some perspective over what's occurring today and and help us inform uh, what meaningful action can be taken? I think the lessons that the suffrage movement can teach us for today are one that social change is hard. And political change is slow. And persistence is the key. One of the things you have to admire about these suffragists for all their other faults is they kept going. And I think that's important to recognize that there will be failures. And that doesn't mean it's the end of the movement, but you have to expect that and you have to be have the both spiritual and practical steps necessary to go forward. The second is that it does take an education process. I think we're in that period of organizing and educating and agitating that Susan Anthony talked about. And we see that in the streets. The protest is important. The education is essential, but there has to be a strategy, a political strategy. What exactly are you going to work towards as a nation to, to solve some of these? And some of these are atti attitudinal. Some of this is not just changing a law. You can't just change a law. You have to change attitudes. Educate, agitate, <laughs> legislate. Mm -hmm. I like it. 
Thank you, Elaine Weiss. I do appreciate you. Thank you, Sue. This has been an episode of Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality, a new podcast series from the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association in collaboration with the Oregon Historical Society. We focus on historical and ongoing barriers to voting. Want to find out more? Hit subscribe to check out our episodes and visit the website for the Oregon Historical Society at ohs.org and oregonfederalbarassociation.org. I am Celia Howes, the lead host and executive producer. Frayne Masters is our creative director. Miranda Schaefer, our producer. Gabriel Granillo is our editor. Special thanks to Fiona McCann.